Thank you for joining us today at Our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in seven different locations. We hope that today's message encourages and empowers you on your spiritual journey and helps you grow deeper in your relationship with God. To learn more about Our Savior's Church and how you can get involved, you can visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. I want to talk to you about appetites, whether we say appetites or, or cravings or desires. I want to talk to you about appetites. And let me just say a couple of things. I'm going to share some things about appetites with you, and then I'm going to take you to a passage of Scripture, a story in the Bible that, in my opinion, is probably the most unbelievable story in the Bible. But, but before I do that, I want to say this. My goal today in sharing God's word with you is not to condemn you, but to challenge you. There will be some of you, as we walk through this story, as we walk through the scriptures, you may deal with some regret or maybe even some feelings of hopelessness. And I'm going to share my story at the end, but I just want to remind you today, the motivation of my heart, the motivation of the word of God is to challenge us to do better, okay? So I want to talk to you about appetites. We all have appetites, right? Wherever uh, there are appetites, there's this tension because typically our appetites only know one word, and that's more, right? We, we, we experience these tensions through what the Bible calls temptations. We know that Jesus, right, was tempted by the enemy. Matthew chapter 4, I, I, I'll tell you a little bit more about it in a little bit, but we experience the tension of these appetites through temptation. And whenever we talk about appetites, obviously the first thing that comes to our mind is food, and that can be definitely a big appetite. But many people have appetites for a lot of other things. Maybe it's food, maybe it's sex, maybe it's, um, maybe it's progress. You just want to progress at all costs on your job or, or wherever you are. For some, it's respect. We're all born with a need, with a desire for respect, but for some, if you're not careful, that God-given desire can literally become something that controls you and destroys some relationships in your life. Maybe for you, you have an appetite to win. Maybe you have an appetite for love, and you've traded a whole lot of things to simply feel loved by someone uh, maybe your, your appetite is, is uh, acceptance, or maybe your appetite is fame. You know, when I grew up, fame was like something you didn't have any dream of. But now, in the world of social media, right, all the kids think they're going to be, my kids walk around taking pictures. I don't do that. I don't do that. Tara, Tara doesn't let me do that. But my kids, right, kids, in their minds, maybe somebody is going to see, and, and I'm going to get famous. Maybe you have a desire for recognition or an appetite to be envied, or maybe your appetite is you just want stuff. We all have appetites. And you need to know your appetites are not going away, right? So the answer isn't to get rid of them. Most of us could tell a story of someone we knew who had everything together but traded everything because they had an appetite that was out of control, and it really wrecked their lives, the truth is, it wasn't the appetite. It was the person who allowed the appetite to control them instead of them controlling their appetites. 
allowing our appetites to control us is simple because, again, they only know one word, which is more. A couple of, a few things you need to know. First of all, God created your appetites. All of those appetites in and of themselves are God-given gifts. They're God-given drives. God created your appetite, but sin distorts them. Sin causes them to go from good and profitable to controlling and sometimes devastating. Think about food. Food's a requirement put into us by God, but the truth is, for some, it really is something that controls them. Secondly, appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. They always want more, right? You remember you you, uh, go to a restaurant and you eat, and you ate more than you should, and you say, I can't eat another bite. And then the waitress walks up and goes, would you like to see our dessert tray? And you're like, I've never been to a restaurant with a dessert tray. I'm not going to have anything, but I'll just take a look. I'll have the banana pudding and the chocolate cake, right? Because you said you couldn't have another bite, but all of a sudden, you wanted another bite. Because... Our appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. If you're not careful, we can think that if I can just get that one thing, then I'll be good, then I'll be satisfied. If I can just meet the right person, maybe you're here today and you're single, and you're like, if I can just meet him, if I can just meet her, then it'll all be good. If I can just have that right experience or, or land that right job or, or get that award at my job or my school, then I'd be satisfied. But the truth is, it's not true. Or you may go through a season of feeling fulfilled, but somewhere down the road, your appetites are going to say, I want more. You may be able to look back at a season in your own life where you can see this in you, that trip. That decision, that season you wish you could relive, you wish you could go back and make a different choice, you pursued what you had to have, but then you later regretted it, it cost you something. Maybe it cost you something of value. Thirdly, you need to know is this, your appetites always whisper now, never later. Your appetites always whisper now. I don't want to offend anybody here, but your appetites are kind of like the used car salesman, right? If you're a used car, I apologize. You've never gone to a used car lot and the guy goes, I think you should take a few days and think about that, right? No, it's like, what do I have to do to get you in this car today, right? Our appetites can be like that as well. And that takes us to our story in Genesis chapter 25. It's one of the most unbelievable stories, in my opinion, in the Bible, because it makes no sense. The center of the story, there's a birthright. Now, you need to know, they're in ancient Middle East, and in that time period, the firstborn son of every, form, of every family is given what is called the birthright. With the birthright comes three things. The first thing is, you get a double portion of your father's inheritance. Everybody else gets one portion, you get a double portion. That's a big deal. If your dad's wealthy, you're like set for life. Secondly, the birthright comes with power. You become the judge or the rule maker of your family. Once your father passes away, you are, you've got the power of the family. 
And then lastly, the birthright literally comes with, uh, with favor from God. So at the center of our story is this birthright. So you've got a double portion of inheritance. You've got power. And you've, and, and you've, and you've got um, favor from God. And let me, pick, let me bring you to this story, Genesis chapter 25. So once when Jacob was cooking some stew, so Jacob was the younger brother that we'll see here. Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Now, there's some differences between Jacob and Esau. Jacob, the younger brother, was kind of soft, if you know what I mean. Like he liked to hang around the house with his mom. He liked to cook. His mom was really proud of him because he just he didn't get in trouble. He, he just kind of did the right stuff. But then there was Esau, the older brother. Esau was a hunter. He was a warrior. He probably didn't use the best language. His dad was really proud of him, right, because he was kind of a rough and tough uh, guy. And so here in this story, we've got this family dynamic with the younger brother and the older brother. Now, I, I don't know about your family dynamic, but I grew up as the youngest of four sons. In fact, two of my brothers are here today, um, and, and I grew up as the youngest of four. There were three brothers on top of me, older than me. And here's what I knew, or here's what I know. They almost never needed anything from me. I had nothing to offer. I was youngest, right? I needed stuff from them. I wanted to borrow their car. I wanted to borrow some money. But, like, they never needed anything from me unless, like, they, I knew they, were, they came in after curfew, right? And I could tell dad. And I don't know how it was at your house, but in my house, if curfew, my dad said curfew was 10, it was really 9.58, and if you got there at 10.01, there was no grace for you. I, in fact, I remember uh, my, my, uh, one of my brothers, Brian, is here today. And so when I was a kid, we lived in a uh, four-bedroom house with two bathrooms, nine people, two bathrooms. And, and, uh, and so we shared bedrooms. And so my bedroom was here, and you had to walk through my bedroom, me and my one brother, and you had to walk through to get to my brother Brian's bedroom. And, and I was into electronics. I loved tinkering with stuff. And so I, one day while he was gone, because he was always late for curfew, and he always told me he would give me stuff if I didn't tell Dad, but he never came through. And, and, and so I set up an alarm system in my I'm like 12. But I literally had going, you remember Radio Shack? So I, went, really, I set up this alarm system. I'm talking with sirens, with lights, the whole thing. And that night... When I realized it was curfew and my brother Brian wasn't home, I was like, this is my moment. I set the alarm in my bedroom, and sure enough, about 10 minutes later, my brother Brian came walking, the, woo, woo, the lights, and then my dad came running in. I'm telling you, it was amazing. <laughs> it was awesome. But my brothers never needed anything from me, but if they ever did, Oh, that was a moment to leverage, right? That was like, oh, you need something from me? I'm going to get everything I can out of that moment because it doesn't happen often. And that's the story we see. Esau, the older brother, wants something from Jacob. And Jacob thinks to himself, I am going to leverage the moment. And here it is in verse 31. And Jacob replied, 
first sell me your birthright. Your birthright, a double portion of inheritance, power, favor from God for a bowl of stew. Let's be honest, that doesn't even make sense. Like, who would trade those things for a bowl of stew? The answer is, you would if it was the right bowl of stew. Because some of us can tell stories about times in our lives where we traded something that was so temporary for something of value. Maybe you've seen this in in friends of yours or family members where they're about to trade something of value for something that you know is so temporary. Or maybe you've seen this in the mirror. Somebody came along and put something in front of you that you just didn't think you could say no to. All you have to do is trade your future, trade your family, your relationship with your kids, your integrity, or maybe your financial security. If you'll simply make the trade, you can have what your appetite says you want now. But if you say yes to your appetite now, you're going to have to trade something of value later. Maybe you remember when that first baby was born, you and your wife holding that baby thinking, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. But you fast forward because there in the hospital, you swore to protect and cherish. But then years down the road, you chose to walk away from this family for a bowl of stew because you just had to have that and you traded something that you said you would never walk away from for something that was temporary. In fact, when you think about what you gave up and how temporary the reward was, literally this story becomes more believable. When it's the right bowl of stew and it's in front of you, if you're not careful, you just may give in because our appetites tend to control us. They always say now, not later, and they always say more. So verse 32, look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? Die? He was just working in the fields. He came in on his own strength. But now he's saying it's either death or a bowl of stew. I don't know how good your gumbo is, but I'm just going to tell you right now, your your gumbo is not going to keep me alive, as good as some of your gumbo is. But if you put tomatoes in your gumbo, I'd rather die. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So as psychologists have studied the brain, there's a couple of things that they've seen that really alter the way we see things and alter uh, the way we, we perceive things. The first is impact bias. Impact bias is, is a simple appetite is magnified out of proportion. On a scale of 1 to 10, buying that new car is going to be a 5, but your brain is telling you it's going to be a 12. You know you've done things like that, right? You had that thing you just had to have. Spending time with him, spending time with her, oh, it's going to feel so good. And it may be good, but it's not that good. It magnifies that thing we want to the point where it's all we can think about. 
after you bought the car, it wasn't as awesome as you thought it would be. Or you thought it was the car, but it was actually your brain playing a trick on you because impact bias tricks our brain into only thinking about what we will get, listen, without honestly thinking about what we will lose. I'm going to say that again. Impact bias tricks our brain into only thinking about what we will get without honestly thinking through what we will lose. What you thought would actually would fulfill sometimes actually leaves you less fulfilled than you thought you would. This is the second one is this focalism. Focalism is focusing our mind on one thing and blurs and it blurs everything else out. Have you ever wanted a new car and you decided what car you wanted and all of a sudden you saw them everywhere? Right? That's focalism. It's 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 why we can get hyper-focused on one thing as if that's all we want, all we care about, all we need. And so maybe this is why Esau would say, I'm going to die if I don't have what I want. It's easy to see this in our kids, right? You, your kids have 100 toys at home. You take them to Walmart, and they would trade all 100 for that one toy in the moment. And then the next day, they want the other toy at Target, Right? But in, that, in their minds, I just have to have that. And it's easy to look at them and say, don't be ridiculous. But as adults, we do the same thing at times. So Genesis 25, says this. Because Jacob wanted to make sure the deal was secure. But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. He sold his birthright, a double portion of inheritance, power, favor from God for a bowl of stew. Now, here's the deal. If, if we could for a moment hit pause and drop into that place with Jacob and Esau before Esau gives away his birthright, we would probably freak him out because, right, they're like, what are you wearing? That's so 6,000 years from now. Anyway, that was funny. Um, <laughs> this, is what we, this is what I'd say. Esau, before you trade your future, there's some things you need to know. Because Esau, I've read the book. Esau, before you trade your future, you need to know you're going to have 12 sons. And your 12 sons will have 12 large families. And all 12 of those families will end up in Egypt. And after they're there 400 years, they will literally, your family, Esau, if you don't trade your birthright, your family will become a nation of millions of people. And God is going to raise up a man named Moses. And God is going to introduce himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Moses. I mean, Esau, God is going to introduce himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But if you trade your birthright, it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Esau, that's not even the biggest thing. God's going to use Moses to save a nation. But God's going to do something much bigger. God is going to send his only son 
not to save a nation, but to save the world. And, and, and Esau, God's going to use a man named Matthew to write a book, literally about the life of Christ. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 2, it's going to say this, that God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But Esau, if you trade your birthright for this bowl of stew, it then becomes, it becomes Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as we know, that's exactly what happened. Because we weren't there. We weren't there to step in to say, Esau, 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 you're thinking about this all wrong. It's just a bowl of stew, and it's your future. We weren't there. We weren't there to help him reframe what really matters in the moment. Or what matters really long term. And here's what you need to know. That when the enemy puts a, pushes a bowl of stew in front of you, whatever that is for you, we won't be there either. We won't be there to say, stop, stop, stop. Think about your kids. You promised that you would protect them and never leave them. But we won't be there for that. Listen, we won't be in the boardroom to say, do not take this shortcut financially. It could cost you everything. We weren't there for Esau, and we won't be there for you. You're going to have to make some decisions on what really matters most. Because in that moment, are you sure you really want to make the trade? Do you really want to trade your integrity for that? Do you really want to trade waking up with your kids in the morning and putting them to bed at night for that? Do you really want to trade, have an influence in your community for that? When that happens, you're going to have to do what Esau didn't do. See, Abraham told his son Isaac. Abraham told his son Isaac. Abraham had a promise for God, from God. He had to tell his boys about what God was going to use them to do. And Isaac had to tell his boys Esau and Jacob, what God was going to use them to do. But they forgot, or they chose to walk away from it. Our only hope in that moment is to do what Esau didn't do. Let me give you some ex a little exercise. And you've, you're familiar with this exercise, but I just want to remind you. We're going to have to reframe that bowl of stew in the context of what God wants for us, or maybe what God has promised us. And I would encourage you to take a piece of paper and write these three statements down. I want, I wish, and I pray. And write down in 12 months, what do you want? What do you wish for? And what are you praying for? In five years, what do you want? What do you wish for? What are you, pray, what are you praying for? Because when that bowl of stew is brought before you, you could go back there and remind yourself of the desires that God put in your heart, the things that God spoke to you. What do you want your reputation to be? What do you want your business to be? What kind of job do you want? Where do you want to live? How about your finances? You're standing in the community, your marriage, your relationship with God. You'll be able to remind yourself that the things that God put in your heart 
are so much greater and have so much more uh, value than that temporary bowl of stew. To trade away your future, to trade away your relationship with your family. Listen, when you're tempted to trade what God has for you later for what's being offered to you now, I want to encourage you, choose God's way. Focalism will blur everything else out. Biblical history was literally changed that day in Genesis 25. Listen to this, verse 34. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. The tragedy, the story, and so many other stories stories just like it, is that in a few minutes the stew was gone along with his birthright. I would ask you this question. What's your bowl of stew? Because maybe as I talk, you know that you're in a season of really weighing some things out. Maybe you keep going by that certain store because he works there. Oh, you've got a commitment at home, but he works there, and this is like exciting. Maybe you find yourself responding to text messages from her that you know you shouldn't. Maybe you're thinking of a business deal that you know is a shortcut and you know is dangerous, but your appetites are just saying now and more. And maybe when we talk about this, you go, you just don't understand. You don't understand what this feels like. Like, you don't understand how bad I want this. I want him. I want her. I want that. Listen, Your brain is telling you it's going to be something that it really won't be. And let me just tell you one of the benefits of spiritual family is that you don't have to make this decision alone. Men, there are men in this church who will sit down with you and just help you process it and pray with you and help you reframe it to see it in a different light. Ladies, there are women who will literally sit down and pray with you and help you talk this through so that you're not making a life-altering decision by yourself. Yeah, but you don't understand, Pastor. You don't understand what this, how bad I want this. Listen, yes, I do. Because your story is not new. The enemy wants to convince you that your story is like no other story, but the truth is, there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10... Verse 13, it says this, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. Oh, it feels so real to you. But it's just as common as Adam and Eve in the garden trying to convince Eve that God's trying to keep them from something good when God's really just trying to protect them from something that is damaging. It feels different for you. But the Bible says there's no temptation that has overtaken you except what is common. Let's go on and see what it says. It says, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Listen to this last sentence. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Did you hear that? God God will provide a way out of your temptation. Next to this verse in my scripture, in my Bible, I wrote this. Every temptation has a back door. I just got to choose to walk through it. 
I don't know what you're dealing with today. But there's a, there's a back door. There's a way out. And maybe you can't figure the way out, but somebody can help you. Somebody can help you see what you can't see. Last week, I talked about Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 4. You remember the passage, Jesus comes off of a 40-day fast, right? And he uh, goes, and he's in the wilderness, and Satan begins to tempt him. Four times Satan tempts him. And each time Satan starts with this, if you're really the son of God. You know what the enemy was trying to do? He was trying to rob Jesus of his identity. Jesus' identity was everything wrapped up in, I am the son of God. The son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And Satan is literally challenging his identity. Listen. What kept Jesus, one of the things that had to keep Jesus from saying uh, yes to the temptation of the enemy was his identity was stronger than his appetite. He wasn't willing to surrender his identity for his appetites. Your identity as a mom is more important than whatever bowl of stew is in front of you. Your identity as a husband is more important than any bowl of stew that's in front of you. You got to decide that your identity has more value than your appetite. Because once you trade for that bowl of stew, guess what? Your appetite is still saying more. You're going to get what you think you want, but your appetite will still be saying more. So let me just give you two thoughts, and then we'll wrap up. Number one, when you're faced with a bowl of stew, you're going to have to reframe it. In other words, you're going to have to think it through. And again, trying to think it through by yourself many times leads to the wrong decision. Bring somebody else into the equation so you have to reframe it by thinking it through. And then secondly, you're going to have to refrain from it by choosing to say no. Because in the end, it's not about what you get. It's about what you become. I will not trade my future. I will not trade my kid's future and my relationship with God for something so temporary. My goal today, if you're sitting here and you're thinking about the bowl of stew that you traded for, my goal isn't to make you feel guilty or condemned. I know this story. The reason I know this story is so real, so real and so believable is because one day I ate the bowl of stew. When I was in my late 20s, I was kind of between ministry positions and I was working for my parents at their furniture store, maybe for my brother Alden at the furniture store. And, and I was helping out at Crossroads. I was volunteering at Crossroads. And they had a, a, a master's commission Bible college at the time. And I would go in and teach. And there was this girl that I started talking to. And I don't say this. You, you very rarely will ever hear me say this. But I knew that that's who I was supposed to marry. Like I knew in my heart that 
that's who I was supposed to marry. She knew it. The people around us knew it. It was like, it was so, so clear what the will of God was. And we began to talk, and we began to connect, and we began to date. And, and then I took a ministry job in Terre Haute, Indiana. A ministry job. And the goal, the plan was, was that she would graduate from the college and that she would then come up and, and live there with a the family in the church for a while and, and, and then we would get married. Except between this point and this point, a bowl of stew was put in front of me. And I said yes to the bowl of stew. I'll never forget the day of calling her and someone had contacted her and let her know that they had seen me with this other person. And I'll never forget the day I called her. She lived in Mandeville and, and she said, David, I'm done. Please don't contact me again. And I said, just please, just give me one, one chance. And she hung up the phone. I literally walked into my pastor's office in Indiana, and I said, I got I to gotta get to Mandeville. I literally got to Mandeville. She agreed to see me. We sat down uh, there on the lakefront, and, and I, I, I did everything I knew to do. And she said, David, let me think this through. And I'll never forget, I went back to my mom's house, and, and I did what men try to do. I sent flowers. I thought, oh, flowers will make this all better. And I sent her a dozen roses. And the florist called me about two hours later, and she said, Sir, she rejected your flowers and asked that you never contact her again. Right after, I turned, right after that, I turned 30 years old. And I really didn't date from 30 to 35 and a half. I wasn't in a relationship from 30 to 35 and a half. And it wasn't because I was so devastated that I lost her, even though that was there. It was so unbelievable to me that I could be raised in a Christian home, that I could be in ministry and trade something that I knew was God's will for me for something that in the end I really didn't even want. It altered my life. It literally altered my life. And I don't know what your bowl of stew was, but let me just tell you the end of my story. Because when I was 35 and a half years old, I met Tara, my wife. And man, when I look at Tara, and I look at our three daughters, I, I don't know what plan A would have been, but I know this. Plan B is amazing. Because the Bible says God is a redeemer. The Bible says that God's mercies are new every morning and his grace is sufficient. So as you're sitting here thinking about the bowl of stew that you took, listen, don't, the, don't let the enemy convince you that God has no purpose or no use for you. God is a redeemer. And listen, God's got a fresh plan. When Taylor earlier was talking about the prodigal son, Listen, the Bible, if you go read the story on the way home, the prodigal son is rehearsing what he's going to say to his dad. But when he got there, his dad didn't even hear the story because all his dad did was celebrate that he was home. The enemy wants to convince you that God has no purpose for you, that the door is closed for you. Listen, I'm living proof that 
Not only can you love God and make the wrong decision, but God loves you enough to redeem the situation if you'll just let him. I don't know your story, but I know God's story. The Bible tells us that God sent his only son to provide forgiveness for our sin before we ever even knew we needed forgiveness. Would you bow your heads? Father, today we come before you. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the truth there in your word. And God, today we thank you that you love us. God, and that you are for us. And God, every one of us have a story. But our story is nothing in in comparison to your story. Your story of redemption. Your story of loving us to the point of a cross where the enemy wants to convince us that we're not good enough. You've already proven to us that in your eyes we are enough because we belong to you. Lord, today I pray for our future. God, I pray for those that are dealing with some temptation and, and some stew and some, 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 some questions and what really matters and what's really, what do I really want and what direction do I want to go. Father, I pray, God, that they would choose your way. God, that they wouldn't do this alone, but God, they bring someone else, some other people in to help them reframe it and maybe refrain from it. Father, thank you that you love us, and thank you that you're for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet today? Hey, let me just let you know a couple of things before we uh, dismiss. First of all, um, really, I think just one thing. I think there's something else I'm supposed to announce, but I don't remember what it was. (laughs) Um, But if you need prayer today, maybe you're struggling with just the thoughts. Our prayer team will be here in the front, and... uh, and they would love to pray with you. Hey, also, uh, Wednesday, August 9th at 6.30, we'll have our back-to-school prayer night. We're just going to come pray for our students who are going back to school, whether they're kindergarten, elementary, high school, college, whatever. Hey, we want you here to be a night of worship and a night of prayer, and we'll have some ice cream snacks and stuff after. So, again, that's Wednesday, August 9th at 6.30 right here in the auditorium. Hey, God bless you. Hope you have a great, great day.